I mean, Jerry Bridges has an excellent book where he tells the tale of Butch McGregor who enlisted with the U.S. Marine Corps as an 18-year-old. And of course, you start out with a, a boot camp and there, even though he had been successful in life before and was a pretty big and athletic guy, he was terrified, <laughs> he found soon. There was fear of failure that he hadn't experienced before in his life. And what he hadn't anticipated was the verbal intimidation and humiliation that comes when they test you. And, and through this drill instructor in particular who was on his case and seemed like the slightest infraction, it would be 50 push-ups or running 10 laps. But he was learning from this drill instructor that they were demanding unquestioned, humble submission and respect, and that their every word was absolute law that was being drilled into them. And he knew his life was no longer his own as an enlisted officer. It was about the army. It was not about him anymore. And he was also always on high alert for a feared surprise barracks inspection and was dreading being found not ready. And so the rifles had to be meticulously cleaned, boots polished to a mirror-like sheen, barracks well scrubbed, beds tightly made. You couldn't just roll out of bed like most of us did this morning if you were in that setting. General Collins one day came. The revered man himself came into their barracks and of course, Butch McGregor was standing at attention, but there was a little, even though he's trying to stand still, there's a little bit of him that's trembling, and the general comes walking by, and the general stops right in front of him. And he can feel the, the fear. His mouth is like cotton as the general asks him a question, and then he tries to respectfully answer, and then the general moved on, and it was over. But there was a profound sense of awe in that moment as this high-ranking officer, far higher than anyone around there, the sergeants or others that he knew, comes into the room and is in his very presence. He's this humble, lowly recruit who has this Marine Corps general who is far superior to the other command and later on in a wartime deployment, General Collins was promoted to Major General, which McGregor also was promoted, and he ended up being the general's driver. And when he heard about that, he had mixed emotions again because, again, he was remembering those cold, steely eyes that were looking at him in the past on that memorable inspection day. But as he got to know him and spend time with him, he discovered that he was a no-nonsense general who was also fair. And as he drove him around in the car, listened to other officers' conversations with the general, his respect and admiration for him grew as a, a man who was obviously wise and had great skill in how he dealt with people. And Butch was often amazed at that, and his awe for him was increasing. But now it wasn't just that initial fear anymore. There was a a respect. He, he had, of course, shown respect to him before, but now he felt respect. And he even began to like the general. But despite that growing personal relationship, he knew they would never be buddies. He never lost that sense of awe. He was always conscious of that vast difference in rank and he would always, even in casual conversations, say, sir, when he would speak to him. One day in dangerous territory, the car that they were driving in hit a landmine. And the general was actually thrown from the car, but Butch remained trapped in the front seat of a burning vehicle. And the general, at the risk of his own life, went to the car, crawled to the car, and was able to pull Butch out to safety. Imagine you're going to die. Imagine the fear and, and trembling that you would have if you were him after you'd been rescued and they were both evacuated to a field hospital. A general calling his injuries were not too serious, but Butch took many more weeks to recover. And while he was there in the field hospital, 
On more than one occasion, multiple occasions, the, the general came to visit him personally. He was very busy in a, in a, with a lot of responsibilities and command in a, in a time of war, but he personally came to visit him, to care for him, to ask him how he was doing. Despite their vast difference in rank, the, genu- the general genuinely loved him. And so now, in addition to awe and respect and and, and admiration that he had before, he began to feel a love and a gratitude towards this general as well. And he determined he was going to be the best when, when he recovered and was able to drive with him again. He was going to be the best driver any Marine general ever had. But he also knew they would never be buddies. They would never be equals on the same level. There would always be this, yes, sir, Dynamic, And with that story in mind, I would ask you to turn to the book of Exodus and the true story of the Israelites in chapter 20 of the book of Exodus. And this is going to be part two on a study of the fear of the Lord, but I, I hope that helps illustrate a key part of it as the context of what we're going to read is Israel at a, at a base camp, so to speak, in Horeb, and, and they're being prepared for battles that they are going to face ahead of them. And these fearful young believers are learning God's word is absolute law, and he must be respected humbly. And they're learning it's not about them. It's about the commander that they've been enlisted to. And this is no drill instruction. This is a live test. We might say Exodus 20 verse 20, Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. And so we want to look again, last week we began to look at this, but I want to look again at this fear of him this fear of the Lord that needs to be with us so that we do not sin. Last week was a a foundation of what fearing God is. I, I think we need more application today. And I want us to consider the blessing of fearing God rightly. And then we're going to look at the bondage of a, a wrong kind of fear about ourselves and the fear of man in the context and broader biblical context, but the right fear of God was to bless and to protect and to test them, as we saw last time. And there's some verses there from Proverbs and and Psalms that we won't look at, but all of these say in different ways, blessed are those who fear the Lord. This is a a dominant theme in Scripture. There's a a blessing, there's a blessedness, and even a, a joyfulness that can come when we fear the Lord. Think of that army story. And Jerry Bridges is the one who tells that in his, his book, The Joy of Fearing God. It, it, was, it was good to be ready. It's, it was good to be ready where he lived. It's good for us to be ready for action. It's good to be ready for inspection at any time. And to consider that relationship that he had with the general, there was a healthy fear that was, that was very much a part of it in the beginning that led him to, to honor him and to want to please him, and it led to blessing for him. And there's the the searching eyes of our Lord should also cause us a certain amount of of trembling because we want to please and honor him, and he sees what no one else sees when he looks at us. And and there's, at any time, we have to be ready to give an account. And when I think about that, that gives me a little bit of cotton mouth as well. But as we get to know God more, some of that raw... Anxiety turns to a a reverent admiration as well. There's this awe, there's this amazement we have at his wisdom, his incredible skill in, in dealing with people, his fairness and his kindness. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we could also say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wonder, love, and praise for the Christian we both show and feel respect if, if we are fearing him rightly. 
And we have love for him because he rescued us from death and sin. The, the general from heaven did not just risk his life. He gave his life to rescue us from the fire of hell that we deserved. He laid down his life, Jesus did, on the cross. And that should sometimes cause us to tremble. It should cause us to be humble and grateful that Jesus took what we just sang about. He took the Father's wrath and completely satisfied it. He took the judgment that we deserve for us. And then he visits us. That's a language of scripture. When Jesus came, they said, God has visited his people as they saw the kindness of the Lord interacting with people. He continually visits us. He continually cares for us in love. Even though there's a vast difference always and, and will be in his rank in heaven, he comes down to our level, loves us, cares for us, and that should motivate us more than the initial terror. We want to do our best to honor him supremely if we understand this rightly, but it's never going to be buddies. We always need to speak to him as Lord. He is Lord. Yes, Lord, we always need to say, even though there's a closeness there, there's a highest respect and reverence. There's a recognizing who he is. One of the Psalms, it's not there on the screen, but Psalm 2 verse 11 says, rejoice with trembling. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Those go together in God's word. And if you want to read more about that, you can read that Jerry Bridges book. Another one that I put there on the screen, Michael Reeves, Rejoice and Tremble, says this on Exodus 20, verse 20. Moses here sets out a contrast between being afraid of God and fearing God rightly. And he suggests from this, there's not only different types of fear, there's actually different types of fear of God, even for believers. And he surveys some of the older Reformed writers who differentiate between sinful or servile or slavish fear, this is all ungodly fear, versus godly fear that is filial, that is holy, that is relational. Uh, one Puritan writer called it an awful admiration of his goodness, a fear that doesn't contract the heart. It's a fear that actually enlarges the heart. It, it, it empowers and encourages one writer says, wrong fear dreads nothing but hell and punishment, but a healthy fear dreads sin itself, and it's coupled with a love to a holy father. And so Reeves concludes, this is a, we talked about this last time, a falling forward in faith, a joyful trembling or, or sacred delight is, is one of the terms quaking in, in praise and wonder, and, and the fear that, this is, that pleases God is not a groveling, shrinking fear, but it's you're overwhelmed at how kind and magnificent God is, how good and true He is, and it's the right kind of fear that, that leans on Him in, in staggered love and praise. This is something we need to grow in. He, he argues the, the English word fear doesn't fully define it, but there is no single word that fully defines it. You've got to kind of describe it. C.S. Lewis didn't define it, but he described it in terms like this. He's not safe, but he's good. He's the king. We could also say he's not a tame lion. I love seeing lions at the zoo, but I also love that there is a protective barrier between me and the lion. We were at a zoo recently in Kentucky where you, you kind of walk through where there's kangaroos and you get to walk right next to them. There's no protective barrier. I love that. But when there's lions, there needs to be some protection. And even that protective glass, I, I know that that means he's not going to kill me. But when he comes close sometimes, my heart still kind of skips a beat. My pulse still kind of rises a little as he draws near, and I, I see as he comes near majesty and mighty power. I, I've seen lion shows and what they can do and what they're capable of, and it, it, it produces an awe. You actually even say, ah, when you see that. I've heard a lion purr even, and even that kind of shook me a little bit. 
Imagine the blessing of hearing a lion roar. It would cause you to tremble a little bit, and then there would be kind of a, uh, an emotion you can't even explain. But think of little Simba being attacked, and then all of a sudden, Mustafa comes in and, and conquers the enemies. Listen to Revelation 5.4. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered, and he is able to take the scroll. And it goes on to say, those with the lion on the side in their kingdom will reign on the earth. Hosea 11.10 promises for Israel in the end times, they shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion, and when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt. They come trembling, but they come towards him when the lion roars. And of course, that's prophetic language, but it's very much the language of Scripture. When we come to the Lord, we need to… Let me ask you this question. Have you ever felt a trembling towards the Lord in light of your sin? Have you ever really repented before the Lord, humbled yourself before the Lord, seeing who He is and how lowly you are, coming to Him trembling? Are you in Christ? Are you safe from him. Do you have that protection in Christ? Jesus said when he was here on earth, fear him who has the power to cast body and soul into hell. That's the Lord. Fear him. But if you trust him, if you come to him to save you, trusting what he's done for you on the cross, all those fears can flee when you flee to Christ in faith. And the language of some of those prophecies is there's another exodus coming. There's another exodus in the end times where God will again call his people. And even when he came the first time, it was, it was like that Hosea prophecy that he calls his son out of Egypt. And Jesus is that one. He's the lion who, who roars. He's also the true Israel for all who will come to him. But as he, that image of a lion goes way, way back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 49, the prophecy is there would be a lion who would rise from the tribe of Judah, and it says, who would dare to rouse this lion? All nations will obey this, and Hosea's prophecy is not just about Israel being saved. Gentiles from the west and the east are going to be a part of that coming and trusting and trembling and that blessing goes beyond end times to, even in the book of Revelation, there's this language of eternal, worshipful fear. Revelation 19, the second coming, speaks of this fear the Lord. And that last command in the Bible to fear God is even more intimate than, than a, a general or who loves you or a father who loves you. The context there is actually Christ coming for his bride, where the bride is going to meet the bridegroom before that great wedding supper of the Lamb. I can still remember on my wedding day some of the, some of the butterflies in my stomach. My knees were knocking a little bit. There, there was a joy there, but there was trembling. Was there, there were joyful tears and, and I still get those. When I officiate, I, there's a, an element where I, I quake a little bit, and especially in that moment, that moment. And, and I'm, I'm watching this. Of course, everyone else is, everyone's looking at the, at the bride, but there's just something when you see that, that, that moment there, there's a, there's a, a quaking, there's a, there's a trembling that's mixed with joy. I don't know if husbands, you can remember that moment or the last wedding you were at, that moment where you see the bride come down, there's this overwhelming, overpowering emotion that can be adoration. I think that's the closest thing we get in this life to some of those prophecies of the end where Christ will return for his bride. That fearful day of the Lord will be wonderful and joyful for those who are in Christ his beloved church. It's the day when kings and nations will tremble at his voice, and all creation is going to rise to rejoice, the prophet Isaiah says. 
here in Exodus 19, it's language of a covenant ceremony. God is committing his love to Israel. He would say through the prophet, this is when he took them. He was a husband to them, even though they would sadly break the covenant, so there would be needed a, a new covenant. But she was to revere her Lord in that way. And here's what Israel is later told, and these are the Psalm 130, verse 4, 145, and 147. To fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The fact that we have forgiveness should produce this healthy fear. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. Isn't that good news? When you fear him, he fulfills the desires that are good and godly desires. He will grant Psalm 147, 11, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. This is our God that we behold. That's some of the blessings of fearing God. But there's a second part of this that we need to consider, and that is the bondage of the fear of man. So this is the wrong kind of fear. The verse says, fear not, fear him, but fear not, because God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. But there's a kind of fear we're not to do it, and there's a test coming to each of us, and that test is who or what will you fear? Don't be afraid or anxious about yourself. Self-centered, that's that's a fear that is focused on a person. In that case, the person is yourself, but you're also not to fear other people. And we'll talk more about that this week. God-centered fear brings us blessing, but this self-centered, human-centered fear, even if it's focused on others as well, brings us bondage and it brings us sin. And in the context of verse 17, just right here before we look at other passages, it can, it can be This is how it can look, coveting a neighbor's approval, coveting a neighbor's accolades, a neighbor's affirmation or admiration. The Ten Commandments isn't just about their possessions. It can be be their praise. It was said of some of the Jews in New Testament days, they feared confessing Jesus for they loved human praise more than they loved the praise that comes from God, or they... They crave the approval of men more than the approval of God. And that can look like fearing criticism or conflict or just just not being cool because we fear man. I tried for so many years to be cool and eventually I just realized I'm not, but it takes a while for some of us. But there's so many things we can put in an unhealthy place. Verse 3 of this chapter says, You shall have no other gods before me. And people can be gods. Pleasing people can be something we idolize. And pleasing people can eclipse the reality of God before us. That becomes what is most important. What other people think Anything about man that we put in the place that only God should have is a violation of the command, and it is fearing man. And it's a bondage. Romans 8.15 talks about the slavery to fall back into fear, and he contrasts that with the relationship that calls on God as our Abba Father, the spirit of adoption, that relational fear. In Exodus 20, verse 2 God says right before this that he's bringing his people, he's already brought his people out of the house of slavery or bondage. But you see, as we come to the end of this chapter, if we put people before God, if we fear what we must not, we're we're going against the purpose of his redeeming us and freeing us. And we'll look at some of that context even for them, but in our context, we can make idols of how people think of us and speak of us that they would speak well of us. And, and don't think when I use that word fear, and we talked about this last time, but I need to remind us, don't mainly th- or only think of having dread. Think of what drives you. Think of what dominates you. Don't just think of a scared, elevated heart rate, although it can include that. Think of what do you supremely elevate 
above all? What is most important to you? What is biggest to you? Would be another way to ask the question. What do you care about most? What is it that consumes your thoughts when your mind is in neutral or when you wake up or, or what consumes you about the future? Maybe it's about your kids or your family or, or maybe it's about what others might say or think in relation to you as a parent or whatever that might be. Moses would write later, you shall not fear man. This is a command. So to fear man is a sin. Not just something unhealthy we need to grow out of. It's a sin against God. We're only to fear him. And go to chapter 1 because maybe the best way to see what the fear of man versus the fear of God looks like is in the context of this story we've been looking at, this true story. Hebrews 2.16 says, The fear of death makes subject to bondage. But we're going to see in chapter 1 how God has let his people free of even that fear. Look at, think of Pharaoh as the king of the most powerful nation in the world at this time. Exodus 1.15, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Now, think of the context here. Pharaoh is in the, the mood of killing Hebrews and, and wanting to kill. And, and he was one of those that if you disrespected him or disobeyed him, you would be killed. You could understand a fear of death they might have had. But look at verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. In other words, they feared their heavenly king more than this earthly king, whatever the consequences might be, I'm going to honor God. I will not do this because what God said dominated them. That's, they feared God. In other words, it, it drove what they did, their fear of God. And you might also say they were already free before the rest of the Hebrews were. They were already free of the bondage. They weren't controlled by that abusive tyrants anymore. They weren't letting themselves be controlled by that because they had a greater fear of God. This is a powerful lesson through these women. But let's go to chapter 4 because the man who's writing this book didn't do as well as those women initially. Don't think of Moses as a fearless hero. Remember when God told him to go, chapter 4, verse 1, then Moses answered, but behold, and he's talking about the Israelites here, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. I mean, that, isn't that an excuse we can give why we don't speak the Lord, his message, and his word? They're not going to believe. They're not going to listen. It might be offensive. I mean, the gospel offends. The fear of man is a snare, the Proverbs say. It's a sin when we disobey God's command to proclaim his truth. But look at verse 10. Moses, so God meets that objection. Verse 10, but Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. I and mean, we can relate to that excuse, can't we? I'm not great at giving the gospel like Ray Comfort. I don't have that great accent. I'm slow at answering objections. I'm not good at thinking on my feet. I think of something afterwards I should have said, but God basically replies to that. I am sovereign over where you are weak or how you're wired. Don't fear man. I will be with you. I will help you. That's what we need to hear too. When we fear man because of our inadequacies, trust God's presence, trust God's power, trust God's promises. That's what I need to do when I feel 
inadequate, which is in a, in a, a number of different settings. I need to get my eyes off myself and think of my God's power, His promises, His presence. If you go to chapter 14, this is after the plagues and after the slaves left, but they fear men of Egypt pursuing them. I, I would have been fearing right with them. They've got this whole army. They're, they're not a trained army. They don't have weapons. And here comes this army on the elite chariots chasing after them. And the end of chapter 14, verse 10 says, As Pharaoh's armies drew near, Israel feared greatly. But then verse 13, Moses said to the people, Fear not. So God's been working in Moses' life. And now as he's speaking for God, he says, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you. It's not about what you're going to do. It's about him and what he is going to do. And Israel sees one of the biggest miracles ever in the Red Sea opening up. They walk on dry land, and then that whole army is drowned and they see it with their eyes. And verse 31 says, they saw his power against Egypt, and so they feared God. They feared the Lord rightly. They feared him as bigger than all other fears. Those, those men were little in comparison to God. You, th you think of David, that teenage shepherd boy, facing this over nine-foot tall giant, but he understood that God was far bigger to him. This giant was puny compared to the Lord. But see, the problem is we often see the problem or the person is huge and the Lord is small. And so one of the most helpful, it's a hugely helpful book by Ed Welch, and I want to give it to you here as well. So Ed Welch is the author, When People Are Big and God Is Small And that, that title itself speaks, but the subtitle is this, Overcoming Peer Pressure, Codependency, and the Fear of Man. Codependency, where you depend on people too much. He, he explains the, the fear of man is people-pleasing, or, or when I'm controlled by what other people think or might think, and he says, and, and they actually think about me far less than I think, which is part of the problem. We're consumed with what they think, and they're not even thinking about you because they're thinking about themselves like you are. But he says, are you overcommitted? Are you overcommitted? Do you find it hard to say no when wisdom says that you should? That's a symptom of a people pleaser. Do you need something from your spouse or your friend? You need to be listened to, to be respected. That could be an unhealthy dependence on others. Your life can revolve around others or what they think. Are you always second-guessing decisions because of what other people might think? I think this is the right thing to do, but this person might think this. Do you get easily embarrassed? To use biblical language, language the opinions of others to the point where you are ruled by them Welch explains in his own life what held him in fearing man was felt needs and desires and lusts were big. And in relating to people, he says, I feared other people because they were big. My desires were even bigger. And in those moments, my view of God was small. And he says the most radical treatment for the fear of man is not just trying not to fear. It's actually you need to grow your view of God. You need to understand his his bigness, his sovereignty, his goodness, and, and all of these things. He must become bigger to you than other people are. And, and part of our problem with needs is we think we need others for ourselves rather than loving others, which is the emphasis of Scripture, loving others to the glory of God. Our need is to love. If we're going to think about what we need, it's what we need to do. We need to love Others, fear controls. I mean, you can think about COVID, you can think about communist governments, you can think of all kinds of things in history, what a big thing fear can be. But 1 Corinthians 5.14 says this, the love of Christ controls us. There's a, there's a greater love 
But our need, if we think about our needs, our need isn't men's love, approval, appreciation, even though we're so consumed with that. Do people like me? Do they love me? What if they meant this by what they said? We're we're consumed with other people. What we need to do is love others. We need to be controlled and compelled by the love of Christ to love them, to get the focus off ourselves. Jesus, I mean, he summed up the whole Ten Commandments, all of Exodus 20, with these words, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then what comes after that? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So you sum it all up, it's, it's that. We need to love God with all that we are, and we need to love others like we already love ourselves. We don't need to love ourselves more. We don't need more self-esteem, self-love, self-worth, self-care, and, and all of that. We, we do that naturally. What we need to do is love others, give attention to others. I don't need more love for me. I need to love others more, and I need the Lord to be number one to do that. I need to love men instead of fearing men. It's Christ's perfect love that casts out fear, John says. It casts out the fear of imperfect men, and it makes it our ambition to please him. Our kids will say from time to time, they need this or that. I need this or that, but a wise woman once said, you want that. What you need is Jesus. And that's exactly right. We think of things that we need. You know how Scripture speaks of needs, what you'll eat, what you'll drink. And then Jesus brings those things up and he says, your father knows that you need these things. Those are needs, shelter, food, those sort of things. But he says, you need to seek God first and his kingdom. And as you do that, he is going to provide those true needs, and he can also transform your wants and desires to be aligned with what he will grant. In fact, Jesus said there's one thing truly that's needed, you know, not denying the needs for food, water, and bed, and all that, but he says Mary has chosen the good part, the one thing needful. She was listening to the Lord. That's what we need. Some think the Lord and his commands aren't enough, are not enough. And so we've got to add legalistic rules. And sometimes this is a way that people are brought into fear, to try to be brought into conformity with extra biblical standards. And so Paul has to write about this in Galatians 2, verse 4. He says, some of them wanted our liberty, which we have in Christ, that they might bring us into bondage. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, you need to stand firm in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. If it's not a thus saith the Lord verse, don't let someone bring you into bondage. That legalistic fear of man is, is a bondage. We need to stand in our liberty in Christ. But there's other ways... You know, some of you maybe have been even thinking, I, I, don't, I don't really care what other people think. I don't care. I'll, I just say whatever I want. I do whatever I want. That can still be man-pleasing. It's just you're the man you're aiming to please, not God. You say or do whatever you feel. It's not that you're thinking, what would God want me to do or say? You just say whatever you want. That's not good either. You're putting a human being, yourself, above God, but for me, it was the other end of the spectrum. I I didn't speak when I should. When I was in junior high, I was voted most shy kid in school. I think I've shared this before. That's kind of weird, but that that was me. Uh, In grade school, I I was so fearful at an event one time, and everyone knew what team they were on, and I didn't know what team I was on. I didn't want to ask anyone, so I went for, it was more than two hours, I just stayed in the bathroom, and anytime someone would come in, I would put my feet up so they wouldn't know I was there. But even when I was in seminary later, when I would say something in a big class with people I didn't know real well, there was a big fear factor right before. Even while we're in a class studying about how big and great God is. 
my thoughts of self and others still were too big. And I've shared before, the first time I ever preached to a big Sunday school group, I was gripped with the fear of man. My knees were literally knocking like this that morning. But I've shared before, the key for me was reciting Joshua 1, 8, and 9. Do not be afraid. Do not be terrified because the Lord, your God, will be with you wherever you go. Don't be dismayed. And I had to keep reminding myself of God is with me. And that's what helps me. But I wanted to give up. I didn't want to pursue this, but God helped me overcome that. In that context of Joshua, they're getting ready to face the Canaanites. And, and the, the word on the street was they're giants. We're like grasshoppers compared to them. But Joshua was told, and we need to be told, that God is far bigger. Those people we think are big are far less than grasshoppers to our God. So turn with me to Proverbs 29. And this is something that I have not mastered. I mean, just this week, I was playing basketball, and I kind of messed up, missed a shot, and my teammates' body language uh, just messed me up. I don't even really know the guy, and all of a sudden, I reverted like I was back in junior high, wanting the approval of the good guys on my team. But I had to keep catching myself, and I still do, to, to not let positive or negative feedback be too big. And I got over that easier than I used to, but there's other settings where I can still be overcome by what man or men think or say. Second Peter 2.19 says this, By whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. Here's how Proverbs 29.25 says it, if you want to look there. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Another translation, fearing people is a dangerous trap, but trusting the Lord means safety. Sometimes we'll watch some of those survival shows where people are out in the wilderness and they're, they've got to catch food to survive and, and they'll show how they lay traps and they lay traps out hoping that an, an animal will step into that trap and not be able to get out. I was sharing this with some of the kids this week and they said they knew of someone who their, their dog got stuck in a trap one time and they had to come alongside and, and help get that dog out and it made me think of Galatians Six, that says, brothers, if you know someone who is entrapped or caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore them in a spirit of gentleness, but take heed that you are not also tempted. There's, there's traps sometimes that, that we can't get out of. Think if you were trespassing on someone's property and you step in a, in a bear trap that you can't get out of it. You need help. And, and, and Galatians is talking about we need help from spiritually minded believers who can come alongside us, who can help us and, and not cause more injury in the process. But they also need to be careful, take heed that they don't step into the same trap. Because if you're both in it, that's not good, obviously. And that trap that we're thinking about today is the fear of man that Proverbs talks about. Trusting God is safety, but when we fear man, it's dangerous. We need to help each other out of this because people-pleasing has an enslaving, ensnaring power. We need to watch out for us and help others too. At the beginning of Galatians, Galatians 1.10, Paul says, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? That's actually a question we need to Ask ourselves, maybe even in the middle of your work day, when you get that email or there's this difficulty with someone, just think about this. Am I wanting God's approval or this person's approval? This is what Paul says, if I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. In other words, if that's ultimate to me, I can't be serving Christ at the same time. I'm serving me. So look with me at Proverbs 19. Fearing man is a dangerous bondage, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe from it. Proverbs 19, 23, 
The fear of the Lord leads to life. This is where life is. And whoever has it rests satisfied. You wish you could just rest satisfied, have more contentment. He will not be visited by harm. The way out of that fear of man trap is a bigger fear of the Lord. Being satisfied and content with him. Go to chapter 14. And I love some of the images that the Proverbs give to fill out truths of Scripture. There's such a picturesque quality of the Proverbs. Chapter 14, verse 26. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. Think of if you were in the part of the United States where there's a there's a tornado or a twister coming, and you want to get yourself and your children to, to refuge. You're, you're fearing that. The, the Scripture uses that image of your children have a refuge when you fear the Lord, when you have strong confidence in Him. Verse 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Isn't that a beautiful picture? It's like this fountain, and it, it satisfies, and it, it keeps coming that one may turn from the snares of death. That's the fear of the Lord that frees us from that as we turn to it. If he's bigger than life, if he's our biggest love and our biggest trust, the Bible uses the language like we will fear nothing else in life. Psalm 56 verse 3 says this, when I am afraid, it's there on the screen if you want to write it down, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. It's not, when I am afraid, I'm going to not be afraid. I will trust in you. That's the key. In God, whose word I praise, we need to praise him. Sometimes we need good songs to even be singing, to get our minds off of things, to praise the Lord. In, in God, I trust, I will not fear. What can man do to me, he says. Why fear man if the worst thing he can do is send us to heaven? This I know, verse 9. Of Psalm 56, God is for me. God is for me, he says. And David wrote that while he was in bondage to Philistines who were trying to kill him. This is no ivory tower, comfortable theologian. This is someone who, in the midst of that, can say basically, if God is for me, who can be against me? He knew his life was immortal until his days were done, his work here on earth. But David knew the fear of man. There's other times where he talks about he was gripped and consumed and terrorized and, and terrified by what people would do. But he, he writes from his own experience, Psalm 118, verse 5, the Lord set me free. He says, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on my enemies. He saw God as bigger than his fears. And he says in verse 8, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Why didn't John the Baptist fear Herod, who also had the power to execute him in wood? I think the key is when John says this, He must increase. I must, what? Decrease. He had an understanding. The Lord needed to increase, needed to be bigger, needed to be all about him. He needed to decrease. We need to pray that prayer. We started with Moses, whose life was transformed from fearing man to being able to fear God and help his people through that. The criticism and the approval ratings for Moses, all of that began to fade as he had a growing fear of God that we'll see through the story. He was still a man who would falter at times, but the Lord had changed him. But think of a New Testament example also closer to our time. Think of Peter. Remember the time when he is in fear, denying, cowering before a servant girl. Not just a fear of man, a fear of girl. I think there's two different girls that he fears to in that story. But Peter was transformed. Jesus recommissioned him. And Jesus promised to be with him always, and the power of the Spirit 
just weeks later, transformed Peter to be able to stand up in front of thousands of people and to say, you killed your Messiah, but there's forgiveness if you'll repent. That's a different person than the Peter just five or so weeks earlier because Christ was inside him, Christ was on his side, and so he didn't fear what would happen on the outside. First Peter, listen to what he writes, First Peter three fourteen. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is within you, but he says, do it with meekness and fear. Not fear of them, but you're thinking of the Lord. There's a, a reverence and gentleness as you think of him. And that same chapter, verse 2, says wives can even win unsaved husbands by their reverent conduct. Same root word. Jude 23 says, save others, show mercy with fear. Not just in our, our witness, in our work. It says in Ephesians 6, 5, with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. And this is this talking about in your work. To not be a people pleaser or just doing eye service, but with fear and trembling, you're doing this as if you were doing it for the Lord, as if he was your supervisor, as if he was there watching you. And then it says in Ephesians 5.21, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. We need each other. We need to repent of fearing man. We need to read big God passages like Isaiah 40, Job 38 to 42, the Psalms, study his attributes. Read that book when people are big and God is small. And above all, pray that he would increase and that you and I would decrease. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, I, I pray with Psalm 119, 38, establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. Our Holy Father, we thank you that you sent your Son to free us from the fear of death and hell. We thank you that even in the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil because you are with us. We thank you that in the shadow of the Almighty, we do not need to fear the terror of night or by day. And we will not fear your word says, even if the earth is moved or the, even though Sierra mountains would be cast into the sea, you are the one who's fearfully and wonderfully made us, and we ask that you would make us to fear nothing but you, to revere you like no one else. We know that there is so much in our world that is deceptive and fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Help the women here to fear you above what any other woman or person would think. Help the men here to be God-fearing men and not men-fearing men. Free us from the peer pressure and the people-pleasing to please Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen.